Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast on legal empowerment during COVID-19. This is the Immigration Advocates Network. We harness the power of technology and collaboration to support immigrants and their allies. My name is Jillian Jin, and I work within the organization as an AmeriCorps VISTA to help improve access to justice. I'm excited to introduce our guest today. Her name is Sukti Dital. She is the executive director of the Robert and Helen Bernstein Institute for Human Rights at NYU School of Law. This institute advances legal empowerment with a focus on participatory research, advocacy, and education. And with that, I would like to welcome Sukti. Hi, Jillian. It's nice to be on here. Yeah, so just to hop into it right now, um, we previously talked about focusing on three topics. One, the impact of COVID-19 on vulnerable groups. Two, an overview of legal empowerment and its benefits during the pandemic. And three, what this would look like in practice for pro bono. So, access to justice has always been limited for certain individuals and during the pandemic, I, I feel like this has been even more so exacerbated. So I'm wondering in your work and research, what communities or even areas do you really see being impacted by COVID-19 right now? Yeah, it's such an important question, Jillian, and it's a, it's a big question. I mean, if we think about just here in the U.S., um, we've seen how the pandemic, as, as many have written about, is exacerbating what were inequalities and inequities before the pandemic. Um, what the pandemic has done is, in many ways, uncovered what we've been saying is a justice pandemic within a larger pandemic. And so those who are feeling the brunt of it are black and brown communities. They are people who are who are in carceral systems like prisons and immigration detention centers who are not able to access adequate health care um, or receive clemency to be able to get compassionate release or other ways to get out of facilities. You have folks like um, undocumented immigrants who have been intentionally left out of federal relief packages or state relief packages for recovery. You have women and children who are struggling to get access um, for basic childcare and other types of, of nutritional services that would have been provided through the state in a more normal, quote unquote, normal time. Uh, so you're really seeing how the pandemic, as it cuts across you know, health, really comes to the heart of, of, of what do we value, who do we value, and where do we want to make sure that um, justice is being delivered to those um, at the margins. And the pandemic is just worsening that. You know, I mean, I'm not even talking about gig workers and essential workers who don't have the type of health and labor protections that they would have needed prior to the pandemic, but even more so at this point. And so this is just in the US, but if you zoom out and you look globally, these are cross-cutting issues. We're seeing these types of, of injustices really rise in every region of the world, and it really falls uh, across fault lines. Yeah, I really like the term that you use, a justice pandemic, because I think when COVID first happened, you know, there was obvious barriers like 
not having access to technology. But, you know, those hidden things, the pandemic has not only brought those to light, but really compounded on the oppression that many individuals, communities, and groups have been experiencing. And, you know, it's interesting because it has always been there, but we're now just realizing, I want to say, like, the intersectionality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That these people are facing. Absolutely. Yeah, you're seeing that it's not just a labor rights issue. It's not just a citizenship issue. It's not just a gender issue. It's not just a race issue. But how these types of identities come together and really create a way in which you are excluded. You are excluded from access. You're excluded from, and right now you're seeing the ways in which vaccine distribution both here in the U.S., when you think about who's getting the vaccine and, and when and how, um, black and brown communities, particularly those from low-income communities um, and areas, are struggling to get access to this vaccine. Who is getting it? The wealthier white um, individuals that make up the U.S. And so you're seeing how race and economics play out in accessing a vaccine. Then if you look bigger than that, and I keep thinking about you know the U.S. and then thinking about the global um, snapshot, because I think it's important. Globally, you see that I think the the countries at the bottom, 130 countries in terms of economics, have yet in mid-February to receive even one vaccine. So that's not that's not something that happens as a as a coincidence, but that's often by design. And I think the pandemic just reveals it much more starkly because you're seeing that it's really in many ways about life or death. Right. And going back to what you said previously, we are really seeing whose bodies and voices are valued, you know, and protected at this point. And I'm kind of wondering, do you think COVID-19 may be a turning point in not only bringing this to light, but kind of the community and legal field as a whole being more proactive in, you know, fighting against this and trying to make changes? in a more, not only radically way, but, you know, I want to say quicker, like it's a priority. I mean, that's, that was one of the, I think the, if we could say it was hope, but that was one of the things that organizers and, and lawyers and community members were talking about. We saw it with the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer. And then a lot of, you know, people were out clapping for essential workers and healthcare workers the first couple of months and felt like, okay, here we're seeing through this the gaps in our systems. They're not broken systems, they're by design systems that have excluded, you know, the majority of us. And so there is this sense that this is the time to really reimagine. This is the time to rebuild. This is the time to transform these systems. And so I do think that there is there is some um, truth to that. And I hope that that's what will guide many of us working within within legal empowerment more broadly, just community justice spaces. Um, also recognizing that memories are short and as vaccines roll out, which is a wonderful thing, and you know we return to some semblance of what it was before, that we it, it will feel again like an opportunity that we didn't rise to what we needed to do. And so that's where legal empowerment comes in a bit. I mean, why legal empowerment is important. Um, and I think a valuable rights-based methodology to think about um, is that it's, it's saying explicitly that the only way 
to achieve human rights. And the only way for us to build societies that are equitable are such that the people who are impacted by injustice, those who are living it and breathing it, understand, um, understand what their needs are and need to be part of the conversations around how to rebuild and how to reimagine. And so it's about democratizing the way we think about law, democratizing the way we think about participation. It's about translating um, sometimes technical terms into ways in which folks can understand it, such that as they begin to understand the laws and systems around them, as they begin to then use them, then they can shape them and ultimately they can transform them. Um, and I think the, the legal empowerment that we think a lot about at the Bernstein Institute is, is a critical form of legal empowerment. It's saying that it's not just about access to justice, it's about transformation. And um, it's not about just the way the systems are currently. It's really important that we maximize all that we can in the current systems to uplift the rights of those marginalized. But it's also recognizing that the law has consistently been a, a, a tool of oppression. And so we need to be able to use those systems to rebuild and reimagine alternative ways of, of protecting rights. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you're saying, giving that power to individuals and educating them so they can make informed decisions on their own is obviously a very, like it has a very profound effect on individuals. So I'm wondering like in your research and just your work in general, what you have seen, I guess a better word is like the effect this has on an individual to be able to navigate the legal system on their own. Because I, I think we talk a lot about how organizations and legal service providers can make this happen, but I think it's also important to discuss what that does exactly for communities and why it's so important for them as well. Yeah, no, it's a really, really, um, I think profoundly important question. There's this, there's this thing we talk a lot about around like what are the impacts of the work that we do? And so we're, we're conditioned to think about kind of the more um, traditional impacts when we're thinking about a legal case, for example, like did they win? Did they get, did they stop the eviction? Did they get the access to their medical records? I mean, it could be anything. And that's super important. And that's what we report on. And oftentimes because of the way foundations and others are structured, that's what that's our indicators. That's how we show that we're, we're, we're making impact. Um, the number of complaints you might file, and all of that is, is absolutely important. But what else is important is kind of more of the intangible effects of the way in which you work with people. And so if you work with people in a way that feels more democratized, that feels more equitable, that feels more empowering, what happens in addition? And so is there a change of agency? Is there a change of literacy? Is there a sense of kind of self-determination because of the way in which, the mode in which you are working with, with a community or an individual? And so there's, a, there's an increasing amount of research looking at what's called like empowerment effects. And so um, you would interview someone at the start of a, of a legal training or know your rights training um, when let's say they're going to become a paralegal for an organization, which is basically like the bridge between a community and the lawyer and the legal system. These are folks who are not trained in the law. They're not lawyers, but they get trained on kind of basic rights and skills, like how to advocate, how to document, how to do data collection. And then they really become like that frontline justice worker, frontline defense for a community. And so um, um, thinking about that, 
like what is the effect of having that kind of program? And what we found increasingly is that it does result in increased sense of power, increased sense of agency, a sense that you can, not only can you navigate this one eviction, but that skills, that kind of sense of, of knowledge and, and understanding goes to other parts of your life. You might then have um, gotten a jaywalking ticket, or you might have gone to school for your ch children's school and been denied a, a, a lunch, for example. But you know now a better sense of how to navigate those administrative systems and those kind of bureaucracies. And so that is a sense that I can do, that I have the right to do, that this is not a charity, but this is something that I, you know, that is my right. It's something actionable. It activates you. And so. There is really um, important research that's been building on that. And, you know, we're part of a, um, we've been working with uh, an immigrant rights organization called New Sanctuary Coalition for the past couple of years to do together an evaluation of their work. We're, we're specifically and intentionally calling it a participatory evaluation because we're trying to also disrupt the way knowledge is produced. Rather than an academic institution coming in and saying, okay, this is what we want to study, we're doing it together. We're saying, okay, it's messy, but what do you want to learn about your work? What do you want to understand better? How do you want to improve? And so we've been working together for the last couple of years to interview friends who are immigrant seeking services and volunteers and NSC staff and stuff around their programs. And what we found, and there's a report that will be coming out hopefully later this year, not hopefully, will be coming out later this year, that has found that and this study was done two years in the thick of the Trump administration. And what it's found is that, you know, friends who have in many cases, incredibly challenging legal claims, um, whose asylum cases are likely, you know, either they've been pending forever or they don't have necessarily a very strong legal case. They have a claim, but they may not win. Um, and they're, you know, othered and they're criminalized in this particular time. And yet the profound sense of community, the profound sense of security, of safety that they feel that they have obtained through working with this organization is really, it's really valuable. And so how do we as advocates recognize that as a success? How do we recognize that as something we should be investing in and pushing more towards? And so that's some of the stuff that legal empowerment also does is it's about the law, but it's also about all the things that come with using this as one of the tools to kind of advance your own dignity. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's incredible because, you know, advancing the dignity and giving someone that voice is a very powerful thing. And, you know, tying back to what we were talking previously about certain bodies not valued. Um, I'm I'm wondering why is this such a radical idea and how does that tie into the idea of also certain bodies not being protected and valued if that makes sense like I guess it's obviously has so many positive benefits so what are the main areas of contention and what is really limiting or even putting up a barrier to legal empowerment being more widespread and accepted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing is, is that, I mean, we as lawyers, I mean, I'm a lawyer, um, we are gatekeepers. We see ourselves as holding this 
particular expertise and we don't really want to let that go and this this the legal empowerment work absolutely values the role of a lawyer in terms of of having a specialized knowledge per se but it it sees the lawyer as as someone who's part of a much broader justice ecosystem someone who's working with families who's working with those who are going through the justice problem working with governments and the whole host of things and so our our job is really that more of a partner rather than as someone who comes in and diagnoses and tells you what you should do and then leaves and so um you know lawyers are worried they're worried that maybe they're gonna like that in doing so they're gonna lose this specialized expertise that they've spent you know lots of money and um to obtain and what we keep saying is you're so totally important and valuable like the way our court structures are are set up, there will be absolute need for you to litigate XYZ thing, something that is hyper-technical perhaps. And there just is not enough of you. Like even if all of you were working, you know, over 80 hours a week, there would still be millions of people that don't have access to justice, let alone in this country, let alone in the world. And so we've got to think about how to do this stuff differently. And there are places like India and places in like Kenya where community paralegals can play a much more robust role in the country and there is still a vibrant legal profession. So these things can exist, not that they don't have those same tensions, not that they don't have protectionism that that happens, but there's there's space for all of us. And that's not just like a pragmatic thing because it's efficient and it gets more people, their cases resolved and some things don't need a lawyer and blah, blah, blah. But it's also, I believe, morally just. Like people should understand the things that implicate them and be able to have the resources to make decisions about where the kind of lives they want to to live. And so that's why, you know, there is resistance from the legal profession. Um, that's, that's a big one. Um, what else is there? I think there's, you know, rightfully people that are on the radical left are, are, they question the legal project. They question working with the law because of its history of, of being a weapon of oppression. And so, um, you know, do you work inside or do you work outside systems? So there is there is real, I think, important critique around around what's the best approach to kind of achieve the type of transformation that people want. Um, and it costs, you know, it costs some money to fund educating communities and building out those resources and funding organizations that do this type of work. And so there's also, I think, a financial resistance that plays out. I mean, I really like the word you use as, you know, lawyers, they are a partner. It's not, you know, they're not just the expert, but they're a partner with the people that they're helping. But I do see how that narrative of, you know, paying so much money to get a legal degree, you want that specialization. Um, I'm kind of wondering, like, how do you think people could begin to take that narrative apart and kind of break it down so people could be more accepting to the idea that there is space for everyone? Yeah, I mean, I think in a legal empowerment field, people often turn to the healthcare space as a way of like a, a model of learning. So in the healthcare space, you have doctors who have gotten very specialized degrees and play a absolutely important role in, in, in the work that they do. And yet you have a ton of other people that are also working in the healthcare space from like physicians assistants and nurses to nurse practitioners to 
you know, community health workers. And in some way, many ways, community paralegals are meant to be like a community health worker. And I don't think doctors are, you know, running out of money. There's, there's a lot of work to be done. And this just helps. What, what I found is I worked with a number of paralegals in India is that it helps parse out the work. It helps, it just helps you do more. Um, you still have a lot of some of the analysis and some of the writing and some of the expertise that's required from your law degree that is applied. You also do a ton more training. You really have to learn how to be a better translator, not from like a linguistic perspective, but like how do you take words that are complicated and convoluted and make them accessible to people to understand. So you become, you learn different skill sets, but there's no dearth of the work. Um, and I think the, the the main argument is, is that we just have a major access to justice crisis, like millions of people don't have access to lawyers. And why is that? It's, you know, do you just funnel more lawyers in? That's not going to solve the problem because look at the criminal justice system. You have a right to counsel in the criminal justice system if you're indigenous, and yet there are significant issues in the way in which justice is being delivered in the criminal legal system. And there's really exciting models like the participatory defense model that's come out of Silicon Debug and other organizations where families of members impacted by the justice system are totally in this work. They're getting together, they're huddling, they're looking at court transcripts, they're working with each other, and they're working with public defenders to do the work in a way that feels more holistic and more community rooted. And so it's not just about like, you need more lawyers. That's not the answer. It's about how do we work better together with people to kind of get the job done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm wondering like what initiatives you participate in and how your work kind of pushes that forward and how you guys are currently advocating for that change to happen. Yeah, I mean, we're doing things in different ways. So like the the New Sanctuary Coalition report that I mentioned is meant to be one of the first reports out there that kind of puts the U.S. like legal empowerment work on a more global stage. But in that report, it's also meant to to complicate what success and what justice and what impact means. And so that that is meant to then encourage other organizations and other traditional legal service providers to think a little bit differently about how to bring in like a pro se legal clinic or accompaniment or someday like a more robust community navigator program into their organizations. And so that was really the the thinking behind the Justice Power Network, which, you know, Ian is, is we're very grateful as a partner, but Justice Power is really meant to highlight some of the ways in which these organizations are thinking about more community-driven approaches within the immigration space. And so what where do we go from there? One is, you know, encouraging organizations to, to spend some time and learn about how they might be able to adapt and adjust the way they do things. The second is really thinking about how can we support some of the reform that's happening in different states around the country around unauthorized practice of law. Like how do we ensure that the field is still has quality control and has regulation? I mean, that said, there are many attorneys who con are constantly um, engaging in negligence and malpractice. And so it's not like the current system is, is a perfect one, but how do we ensure that if we open up space for community members to start engaging more directly in supporting each other in, in issues of justice, how do we ensure that that's like a, at least some sort of monitoring is happening? But there's some really interesting reform happening in places I think like Arizona and Utah. And, and so we wanna be able to ensure that when the, that type of reform is happening, that grassroots communities are, are part of that conversation. 
that it's not just legal tech companies, for example, or other administrative um, lawyers and, and folks within government, but that if I'm, a, if I'm working for a worker center or a, a housing rights group, that I'm in there telling you why it's really important that m the community member I work with should be able to share with his brother that when he dealt with the eviction claim, this is what he did and that shouldn't be penalized. Right. And so thinking about how can we support um, like more just advocacy around um, unauthorized practice of law. So those are a couple of ways in which we're thinking about it here in the US. And then globally, it's really um, continuing to, to be plugged into different trainings and courses for legal empowerment practitioners um, to come together and learn from each other. So if you're sitting in India and you're talking to somebody from South Africa, what can you learn about how to organize and, and do movement building or do better data collection or fundraise more effectively? Like how do we strengthen um, and create more resources for people doing this, this justice work in different parts of the world? Because the more we invest, the better the outcomes ideally would be. Right. And, you know, I think a great question to end on is what the result of all this work from so many organizations would look like. Like when we radically imagine a society where legal empowerment is not only accepted, but widely practiced, you know, what does that look like for pro bono attorneys and, you know, just any legal service providers? Like, I know that's a very hard question and probably would need a lot more time to answer that, but I don't know. I think it's just interesting to kind of hear, yeah. you know, just a couple of points on what that exactly would look like today. I mean, I think we'd have a much, I think um, the floor would raise, like the foundation at which we're working, operating under right now is still, even in the U.S., so reactive and so basic, like what we're fighting for folks to get. So I think we're still going to be fighting because power is concentrated and power is strong, but we're just going to be fighting. I think for we're not going to be fighting to keep your house potentially, or to keep your to make sure your kid gets some food, or that you can have access to some route to citizenship. I think that we'll have more complicated battles, but there would ideally be some basic levels of 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 support provided to um, communities, and there would be less um, inequity. Um, for sure. And I think that there would still be a lot of work to do. I mean, there is, I mean, look, the climate alone, there's so many massive global challenges that we have before us. And if we don't like arm ourselves with like, mo like the, everyone understanding what their rights are and figuring out how to use them to kind of defend and build a better um, tomorrow, then we're not going to make it. And so this is just a way of of harnessing like our collective and individual power in a way that um, can get us closer to the other side. And so I think if you're a legal service, um, you talk to any lawyer working in legal services or in public defense and they'll, they'll tell you they're overworked and under-resourced. If they had like more people working with them, I think that'd be a good thing. They'd get more, they'd get more cases done. They'd, work with more communities, they'd get ideally more just outcomes. And so I don't think that the work will stop. I just think the type of work that we're gonna be fighting for will change. Right, well, you know, I think that is a great idea to end on. And again, I think this information is so timely. I'm sure it will benefit 
other legal service providers and pro bonos. But Sufti, thank you so much for your time and expertise. This was a great conversation. Yeah, no, thank you, Jillian, for these really, really, I think you're right, timely and provocative questions. And um, yeah, and thanks to Ian for the really important work that you guys do.